One, two, three, four. I declare a clone war. Five, six, seven, eight. The Senate will decide your fate. I am the Senate. Oh, hi. You're listening to Han Talks First. I'm Han, and uh, this is my podcast. This is the podcast you're looking for, where we talk everything Star Wars. And uh, you caught me in the middle of my Revenge of the Sith review. So uh, if you'd like to stick around and hear what I have to say about it, that'd be awesome. Well, this is my third installment of my nine-part review of the episodes of the Skywalker Saga. We are about seven weeks away from the release of this brand new movie called The Rise of Skywalker, and each week leading up to it, I'm watching one of the episodes of the Skywalker Saga, and I'll be reviewing them here on this channel. We are on the third week, which means we are talking about Revenge of the Sith, and let's dive right in. Revenge of the Sith, the third movie in the Skywalker saga, the sixth movie to ever be made, the last movie by George Lucas, and a good one at that. Revenge of the Sith is probably the best prequel out there. Could you imagine if Revenge of the Sith was the, like the way it was made in the style, was the first movie to come after Return of the Jedi instead of The Phantom Menace? Like what if... Revenge of the Sith, what if Phantom Menace was everything that the Revenge of the Sith was supposed to be as far as tone, style, filmmaking, writing, and uh, overall, just the way it, the way it uh, presents itself? I think there would be a completely different look at the prequels. I think that Revenge of the Sith is exactly what George Lucas had envisioned when he said that Star Wars was returning, and that episode one and two were... They were just fillers. The story he really wanted to tell about what the events that happened before A New Hope was Revenge of the Sith. It's about Obi-Wan and Anakin's relationship. It's about the rise of the Empire. It's the connection between what happened in history to what leads up to A New Hope and setting a tone for the new world. And it's also about the Sith's revenge. And we're going to talk about all of it here today. Before we get started, I just want to just briefly tell you about my initial thoughts after viewing, similar to what I've done with the other episodes. So I put it in, and Revenge of the Sith is the one prequel that when I go back to rewatch it, I am less hesitant to view. I do love all of the prequels, and I defend each one of them to their own merit, but uh, Revenge of the Sith is one that I don't really consider to have any guilt when I say that I love the movie. It is definitely George's best work as far as prequels go. Not best work overall, but it's the best one of that decade, I would say. And it really, I mean, if you think about it, he came back to direct The Phantom Menace like 20 years after, or maybe longer than that, like 25 years after never having directed since. And he comes back to do The Phantom Menace. He's got to get 
you know, he's got to get back in the groove. He's got to learn to walk again, you know? Um, and then you saw, I saw improvements into the Attack of the Clones. Not much, but there was some. And then Revenge of the Fist, you, you see it. You see he's, lear- he's learned to run all over again. And it really is a great piece of work. Um, also, after, after it ended, I was, I'm always immediately wanting to go watch New Hope. That's one incredible uh, thing that this movie does. Is it sets it up so well to go into a new hope that I just I want to jump right into it right after every single time. Uh, every time I've watched it, I remember having that feeling. It it really shows a transition from this prequel tone into the original trilogy tone. And it does so in a very elegant and very solemn way. And I'll talk about that more once we get to the end of my review when I talk about the ending of the film. But I want to start by reading to you the opening crawl. Okay. War. The Republic is crumbling under attacks by the ruthless Sith Lord, Count Dooku. There are heroes on both sides. Evil is everywhere. In a stunning move, the fiend-destroyed leader, General Grievous, has swept into the Republic capital and kidnapped the Chancellor Palpatine, leader of the Galactic Senate. As the Separatist droid army attempts to flee, the besieged capital and their valuable hostage to... Wait, sorry. The... <laughs> As the Separatist droid army attempts to flee the besieged capital with their valuable hostage, two Jedi Knights lead a desperate mission to rescue the captive Chancellor. Okay. The reason why I'm not editing out my fumble there is because I think it's important to note that the opening crawls of the prequels are not very well illustrated in words. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very... Back when I was in high school and I had to write essays or whatever, this would have been a great example of... Sorry, somebody texted me. Let me turn off BB-8. Okay. This would have been a great example of what a run-on sentence would be or something that is just jumbled up and it doesn't really make much sense. Uh, I think you know, it, it tells the story he wants to tell of what has gone on uh, in recent time leading up to this movie, but it's it's wordy and it's it it could it could be cleaned up a little bit okay so and like i that's it me not editing out elston goes to show you like what i'm trying to achieve with my podcast here is to try to do as minimal edits as possible and give you my honest and um unfiltered response to anything i want to talk about so that is the opening crawl but what is the movie about the Jedi and the Sith have been in a constant war since their formations. Now, this is like a, a little prelude to all of Star Wars. So, with a th- like over a thousand years ago, the Sith ruled the galaxy. And there's a general hatred between the two, the Sith and the Jedi. They view the Force in opposite ways, and they can't reconcile it. As a result, they are in a constant competition for who will dominate the galaxy, and which view will be spread throughout the people. The Sith crave power, and the Jedi seek justice. These two needs run 
into a constant cycle of uh, collision courses. And sometimes the Sith rule the galaxy, and other times the Jedi are able to maintain the democracy. In this movie, titled Revenge of the Sith, what are the Sith seeking revenge for? Well, it is for that battle that they had over a thousand years ago when the Jedi wiped them out and claimed rule of the galaxy. Now, Palpatine, or the Emperor, is a really old guy. So, had he seen these events unfold in history? Was he there? Why, why does he want to seek revenge for all of the Sith religion? That's really what we're going to be diving into as far as like the main theme and background of this story. But before we get into it, we have to talk about the movie in all of its parts. Starting with the amazing opening scene. So the opening crawl comes in and then it pans down and we see this clone ship and then we the we see two Jedi fighters come in through the bottom and they fly over the ship and then when they cross over the other side we we follow them over and it opens up into this huge space war and we see tons of tons of ships tons of blasters tons of droids just a big CGI orgy in the screen and it's amazing. It's beautiful. It's some of, that's how the movie should have opened in 1999. And honestly, the Revenge of the Sith effects are the best of the prequels. It's, it's, I feel like this is what they tried to achieve in The Phantom Menace, but they weren't quite there. But you can tell there was a lot of effort put into this battle. Especially when you have a billion things going on in each frame. And it's funny, in the behind the scenes, the animators were like, we put everything in there except for the kitchen sink. And then another animator was like, well, why don't we just throw in a kitchen sink? And so if you pause it correctly at one of the frames, you can actually see a kitchen sink just flying by the screen. It's kind of funny. Anyway, now, this whole entire uh, opening sequence is of Anakin and Obi-Wan going to rescue Chancellor Palpatine, which I think would have been a cool story as well to see how he got captured. Maybe that'll be in the season 10 of Clone Wars when that comes out to uh, Disney+. Plus. We'll see. But um, So it has them trying to find Palpatine and rescue him from Count Dooku slash General Grievous. So they arrive onto the ship where he's being held, and they enter this room. And it is a great callback to the throne room scene of Return of the Jedi, because when they enter... Palpatine is sitting in a big chair and he slowly turns around to see them and and it's just it's just like the return of the Jedi when Luke walks in and the emperor turns around in his chair. I thought that was a really cool nod and as George would say it's like poetry it, it rhymes. Um and it's also a callback to Return of the Jedi when they're on Jabba's barge. And this part is when so if if you remember Return of the Jedi they are, Luke is captured, Han's captured, everybody's captured. And he's about to be jumped, thrown into the Sarlacc pit. And then he calls to R2, he says, R2, now! And then he throws him his lightsaber and he escapes and they all live happily ever after. So, 
what happens in this one is there Anakin is in handcuffs, as is Obi-Wan, and they're standing in front of General Grievous, and he's like, this is the end for you guys. And he's like, I don't think so. And then he says, R2. R2 causes a distraction by like pretty much exploding into a, a Swiss army knife, and he does a thousand different things. Uh, another another CGI orgy from R2-D2. Um, and then, I mean, why do you think he's screaming like that? And then they escape. So it's an, another callback to Return of the Jedi, which I think is really cool. And again, it's like poetry. It rhymes. And, of course, the we end this with them taking control of the ship. General Grievous escapes, and they're flying down through the atmosphere, burning up. They lose half the ship. And then... He's like, Obi-Wan's like, oh, it's okay, we're still flowing half a ship. And then they're they're falling down, and they're like, oh, we, we got to crash land, brace for impact. And then they fall, and when they hit the ground, it's this beautiful shot of them rolling into the camera, and then it, they roll in, and it zooms in on the cockpit, and then they're sitting there, and then they hit like the brakes, and they all stop. And then they look at each other, and another happy landing, another amazing quote from Obi-Wan Kenobi. So the opening scene, it's long, it's like 16 minutes, it was actually supposed to be longer in the original script or the original cut, actually. There's deleted scenes you can watch. But I think it's a really amazing scene, and it's what you would expect as an opening scene in a Star Wars movie. It's not really necessary to the movie, but it is uh, It's entertaining to watch. Now, we know that Chancellor Palpatine is in control of the Separatist army, Grievous, Dooku, all of it. So why did he want himself to be captured in the first place? My theory is that he knew Anakin and Obi-Wan would be sent for him. And he probably told Dooku, hey, when they get here, you take out Obi-Wan first. And that's what he did. Remember, he pushed down the big uh, uh, wall thing and fell on him. And then he knew that Anakin would kill Dooku. And when he did, he was probably, he probably set all that up so that he could get rid of Obi-Wan from the equation. And just so he could just have Anakin to focus on. Because he knew if he wanted to get to Anakin, Obi-Wan would have been a problem. So that's my theory on why he had himself get, quote, captured by General Grievous. So, continuing on, I want to talk a little bit about some some Steen's some uh, some scenes that stood out to me in this movie and really show that this movie as a whole is well written and much more improved upon than in the last two movies. So first, I want to talk about the part where Anakin gets his assignment from Palpatine to spy on the Jedi Council. Palpatine tells him, I am appointing you as my uh, representative on the Jedi Council. And then he's like, I want you to... Well, first he says that. And then he was like, they need you more than you know. uh, Anakin goes there. He's like, this is what he said. They're like, okay, we'll put you on the council, but we're not going to make you a master. That pisses him off a little bit. But he's like, okay, fine. And then after the meeting, Obi-Wan's like, hey, we want you to spy on emperor if you're going to be on our council and he's like are you serious like you're my friend and they're like yes we're serious and so i think this and then he goes back and tells palpatine what happened and palpatine's just like 
oh man, I saw this coming. You know what? I want you to tell me what they're doing. So now he's been told by both sides to spy on each other, and he's stuck in the middle, and he's a pawn in their game. This contributes to the story that of Anakin, Anakin's arc. I told you before in my last episode that Anakin is under a lot of pressure in this movie, and this is a part of it. And it's very well orchestrated on as far on George's part in writing this story, because it's not straightforward, in-your-face, spoon-fed material. He's not telling you. He's not saying it to you as I am. It's said through different strains of dialogue that just later match up and become part of this huge story. Another example of this is when Padme, when Anakin and Padme meet to discuss Anakin's role in being on the council and everything. So as he's talking to Padme, she's all like, yo, I'm prego now. And he's like, happiest day of my life. <laughs> so Padme, Anakin's telling, him, telling her about what just went on. You know, I'm on the council, but I have been asked to spy and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, why can't you tell the chancellor to just give up his powers and end this war? And now Anakin's being told by a third person that he has to has to talk to someone else for him, essentially just get in the mix. This is a guy that didn't want to be a part of anything, really. He mainly wanted to be a powerful Jedi just so he can come back as Free's mother. Well, after that was a bust, it's like, what the fuck is he doing now? He has no goal. And now he's being used by both sides to spy on one another, and he's just caught in the middle of it, and he takes all the heat for it. And now his wife is asking him to talk to the chancellor from his point of view he sees it as another person asking him to like spy or using him to tell someone else what to do so he doesn't see it as his wife not knowing everything that's going on with him bottom line they don't have good communication skills so their marriage is going down the drain anyway he's but anakin's being used by all of his friends and my point is, this is what's leading him to the dark side and making him feel alone. And ultimately, which will lead to his demise. So after all these people tell him to spy on everybody and everything, we get Anakin talking to Palpatine about how the Emperor said, I, I want you to tell me what they're doing. And in this moment, that's when we get the Darth Plagueis scene, which is one of the best moments in... Star Wars, and also some of the best writing from George Lucas. Ian McDermott said himself at a celebration, if not this year, it was last year, he was just like, you know, I, lot of, I know a lot of people give George heat for some of the dialogue, but the opera scene is some of the best script writing I've ever read slash performed. And he was sincere about that, and I totally agree, because it... Well, let's just break it down, right? So Palpatine gets him alone, and he says, have you ever heard the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise? He says no, and he explains it's because it's a story the Jedi wouldn't want you to hear because it tells about the nature of the dark side and its capabilities are beyond that of which the Jedi choose to use in their life. One of which is to prevent people from dying. 
which in hand is also the control of life and possibly creating it as well. So right here, we get introduced to the Dark Lord, and he essentially reveals that he is the apprentice of Darth Plagueis and killed him in his sleep and learned everything he knew, and he's the Sith Lord with knowledge of all. And he can evidently teach Anakin the things that he knows as well. So let's talk about where we're at in the story right now. Palpatine, acting as the Emperor, has turned the whole galaxy, or most of it, to become Separatists. Okay? The Separatists leave the Republic. And therefore, they're on the side of war that is against... Well, they're... They're going to be against the side of the war that the Chancellor appears to be on. And then at the end, he switches it, and he says, now we're all going to be under the same rule, and we're going to just go, go by a new name, the Empire, the Galactic Empire. And then he blames the Jedi for leading out this war. So we're not at the end yet, but we're at the part where he's starting to turn everyone against himself. Chancellor turns everybody against himself, by being himself, if that made any sense to you. It's just, it's very clever. And so, <clears throat> it shows that Palpatine is strong with the Force, so much so that he knew Padme was going to die. Because he tells Anakin there that it can save people from dying. He doesn't say Padme, but it's like, you can save the ones you love from death. Which, and Anakin never told him anything of this, so he thinks it's a mere coincidence. And then, this leads me to believe that Palpatine is the cause of Padme's death. death excuse me. And we'll talk about that at the end, too, because I think Palpatine was the one that killed Padme. He just drained her life force or something like that. <clears throat> and then blamed it on Anakin so that he could eventually just get more upset and finally be completely have all of his good character swept from him and just be Darth Vader. And... So the thing that Anakin is fearing this whole time isn't losing his wife. Because he wouldn't lose Padme if he had stayed on the light side and not gone, gone towards uh, the dark and joined the Emperor. What he's fearing the whole time is the Emperor himself, which is his father, in a way. It's not blatantly said, but in the... In the original script for Revenge of the Sith, it did say there was a scene where the Emperor said, I arranged your conception through the midichlorians and I put you in Shmi Skywalker. So in my head, that actually happened. It just wasn't said. So the thing that Anakin fears the most is his own father. And since he was created from midichlorians, it's essentially fearing himself, which is also what Luke was most feared of himself and that was in uh empire strikes back when he knocks vader's helmet and sees his face in the mask blah blah, blah. so darth plague scene and the ones before that i just said are all scenes that i think are very well written and are very important to the story and it shows where we're gonna go now moving on we get to the point where after Obi-Wan told him to spy or whatever. He he gets the assignment to go to that 
fuck, what's the name of that planet? It's the one with the the big lizard dinosaur thing that Obi-Wan rides. So if you remember, in the council room, Anakin said that the Chancellor had requested I go on this mission. And they were like, no, fuck that. We don't listen to him. We're going to make Obi-Wan go. So I never thought about this before, but why, why did the Emperor want Anakin to go to that planet? Think about it. He ends up sending him to Mustafar, but why did he want him to go to this cave base in the first place? We know all the Separatists were there, and we know General Grievous was there. So when he goes to Mustafar, he ends up murdering them all. Was he originally going to go there to murder the Separatists as well? Was that the Emperor's original plan? Doesn't make sense to me. I just thought that was interesting. I don't really know why Palpatine wanted him to go there. But it's interesting to think about that all these things happened. You know, the opening scene where Obi-Wan was supposed to go, and again, this is just my speculation, but Obi-Wan was supposed to be left there and die, but he ended up coming back, and then uh, Anakin was supposed to go to this cave base, but Obi-Wan ended up going. Obi-Wan keeps getting in the way of all Emperor's plans. Like, he was so, like, we're so close to Order 66, and the Emperor's lifelong plan being finally executed that it came so close to almost fucking up if you think about it like these last minor details if they'd have gone it's just it shows how like sophisticated this palpatine is how smart he is and that fact that he's got contingencies which should lead you to believe that the his return in the rise of skywalker is going to have meaning. This guy knows what he's doing. <sighs> okay, so the next part we're at is uh, the Kashyyyk battle, which uh, uh, I don't really care for, honestly. That that didn't need to be in there for me. I guess they just needed a planet that Yoda could go to so he wasn't in the Senate when all the shit was going down so he could just stop it. <clears throat> but it's the Canto Bite. Of Revenge of the Sith for me, you know. Uh, fun fact about it though, um, that scene where it shows all the Wookies preparing for battle and like screaming or whatever. There's actually only seven Wookies there, like in the shooting. Uh, they had seven people in costumes and they just tiled them uh, through CGI throughout it, and they just doubled up. But it looks to be like there's hundreds of them. I just thought it was cool. Something I wanted to comment on. Other than that, I really. Don't see any other reason why we need to talk about <clears throat> the shit that goes on at Kashyyyk. But after Kashyyyk, we see a lot more war. We see a lot more military um, vehicles, personnel, um, military strategy when they're planning it out on their little uh, hollow fields. And I just want to comment again that it's... The ship design, the interiors, the exteriors, the buildings, the people, it's slowly showing the transition into the Empire, which is really cool. It shows the early designs of all these ships. If you remember in my Phantom Menace review, I was saying that the ship designs and the building designs are similar to American industry when we first established ourselves as a new country and everything was new and shiny and um, 
futuristic looking and it was round and everything was pretty. And now we're going into more of an era where everything is getting boxier again and just generic and um, mass produced. Nothing's original really anymore. Well, you can start to see that in Revenge of the Sith. The ships are starting to look similar to Star Destroyers. The clone troopers are starting to look more like clone troopers. <clears throat> I mean, sorry, stormtroopers. And um, the... Um, what are they? The, like, the admirals and stuff are starting to look more like the mechanics and the admirals in the original trilogy. It's just slowly transitioning. We're seeing that in the designs of the people and the environments and everything. And I think it's really notable in this movie, and I re that's one of my favorite parts of it, is it shows a transition not just in story, but in everything. And it really sh it's starting to turn into the Empire, little by little. After this, <clears throat> let's go back to the cave base and let's talk about Obi-Wan being there, right? He finds a little lizard, the little thing that goes, <coughs> and he uh, jumps down this little balcony and he's like, hello there. And General Kenobi, uh, probably the best line in the Revenge of the Sith is hello there. Nope, I have one more. I'll talk about it later. Um, it's just, I mean, a lot of people say they don't like it. I think it's a really cool scene. It's its very westernized in, as far as, like, style goes. Uh, first of all, I want to point out when he, like, jumps down, they're like, attack him. And these four droids come swinging their little double blades at him, and he just drops the air vent on him, and they just, <laughs> I don't know, it just it shows he's, that equals badass to me. He's just like, okay, boom, I'm here to get Grievous, not you guys. Like, I can fuck you all up real easy. So come for me, Grievous. And then <clears throat> when that Western style comes in, um, it's kind of like that standoff. They, the camera zooms in really close on their eyes, and General Grievous is like, I'm going to fuck you up, and Obi-Wan's like, oh, I don't think so. And then they just go at it and start having a fight. <clears throat> As a kid, I really liked the four lightsabers that General Grievous had. Um, I know some people think of it as overkill, but... Um, you know what? Might be. So then they're sword fighting or whatever, and then uh, Grievous loses an arm, as everyone does in Star Wars, and then they he starts to run away again. Grievous is such a coward, man. He's always running away. Even in the Clone Wars, he's just a big, ugly, cyborg coward. And then he, then he runs away, and back to the Western style, he hops on this little circle bike, and then he runs, and Obi-Wan gets on his lizard and chases him. And this is like a... <clears throat> a horseback chase, uh, just back to that Western style, and I, I just think it's really cool. And then when he catches Grievous, he and there's a little standoff again. And I, I did think it was funny that Obi Wan Kenobi thinks he's gonna take him down with his fist because he does like a a rocky move. And when he ends up kicking him in the shin, he he hurts himself. He's like, oh, and I <laughs> think it's so funny. Like Obi Wan's a, a little doltish sometimes, so. Then he shoots him and he dies, and then uh, he stands over his body, and it's that high, uh, low-angle shot of him looking down at Grievous's dead body. Just that whole sequence is very Western, spaghetti Western style, similar to the Battle of Geonosis uh, scene, Attack of the Clones. And I think that's why I like it. It just kind of stands out to, as its own little sequence, and it's just a fun little sequence. Um, well, fun fact, you probably knew this, General Grievous's cough is actually George Lucas's cough during 
the shooting of Revenge of the Sith. George Lucas got bronchitis and he coughed a lot, and so the sound editor recorded him and they turned it into General Grievous's cough. So there's a little bit of Lucas and Grievous. <sighs> and then after that, it goes to uh, cuts to a couple Jedi talking about battle formations and stuff like that, and uh, we get <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson, Mace Windu. Looking at Yoda, and he's just like, I sense a plot to destroy the Jedi. No shit. <laughs> Are you serious, dude? It's, um, I don't know. I just think it's funny. You know, they, they know that something's going on, but they can't sense that it's the Emperor. And, again, just shows how clever the Emperor is. Um, and, again, they were really close to catching him. Um, but the next important thing I want to, or important scene that I want to talk about is this Anakin's fatal decision. The part where he tells Mace Windu that the, the Chancellor is a Sith Lord. And he's like, you have to stay behind. I'll go get him. If what you told me is true, you would have earned my trust. So he goes and waits in the council chambers. And he's playing with like a little Game Boy or whatever. And... This scene is my favorite scene of Revenge of the Sith. And if you don't know which scene I'm talking about, he's sitting there and he's, it's, a, it's a silent scene, no, no words, and he's looking out a window and Padme is looking out her window and they're across the city from each other and that you could just see that they're having a force connection. And... Padme, and this is when Anakin's making the decision, like, okay, fuck it, I'm gonna join Palpatine, and I'm gonna learn the ways of the dark side, I'm gonna be a fucking Sith, and I'm gonna save the one I love from death. Th this is the moment of the movie where this happens, and it's the most powerful moment of the movie, and it is, like, visually the most interesting thing we've gotten in Star Wars, in my opinion. The visual virtuosity of this scene is unbelievable. So I'm going to play a clip of this scene and just listen just listen to how different this scene sounds in compared to any other scene in any Star Wars movie. Check it out. Doesn't that music just put you on edge? It is the most eerie, most ominous, disturbing music in Star Wars. And it's in the most perfect place, too. This scene shows that you can have a very emotionally, very impactful, intense scene uh, in a movie with just visuals and just music. And... I don't know, everything about it, the the sunset in the background, the teardrop in Anakin and Padme's eyes, and the weight of the story that is resting on just this moment where Anakin's deciding, I'm going to be bad, and I'm going to be a Sith, just so I can save the one I love. It's very, 
very powerful. And it is my favorite scene from Revenge of the Sith. Oh, I really want you guys to go check it out sometime. So just go to YouTube, type in Anakin's Fatal Decision, and this scene will come up. It's very interesting. It is the most interesting piece of music from John Williams. It's a very interesting scene in Star Wars in general. We've had nothing like it. It really dives into the tone of this story. This whole, the whole tone of Revenge of the Sith is very dark, but this is the moment that is, it has like Temple of Doom vibes. If you guys watch Indiana Jones, it's just, it's unsettling and very powerful. So, Shortly after this, um, Anakin goes and sees that Mace Windu is has the Emperor at lightsaber point, and he's about to, you know, kill him. And he says, "No, he needs to stand trial." He's saying that so that he can keep him alive. He doesn't really want, probably doesn't really want to put him at trial, but he just wants to keep him alive so that he can use his knowledge and save Padme. Which we all know is fake by now, right? Because Palpatine's the one killing Padme. So, I do believe that Mace Windu can beat Palpatine in a duel. Uh, you could see that when they're fighting. You know, he knocks out the other three Jedi like they're nothing, like they're butter. And then when he gets to Mace, it's a drawn-out sword fight. And you can see in Palpatine's reactions, are quite, which are quite funny, that he's struggling a little bit. Now, I, that does not mean that Palpatine is less powerful. I think Palpatine is more powerful with the Force, but not with a lightsaber. So that says so much when, he's, when he says unlimited power. <laughs> and another great line from this movie, Unlimited power! And he just throws him off the the balcony there. So at this point is when he was throwing the fight. And he was making it seem like Windu was taking control of uh, the situation and was going to kill him. And when he fires his force lightning at him, Mace Windu deflects that. And I'll talk about this a little bit more in a second. He deflects it, it shoots back at Palpatine, and... It hits him, and it's it's hurting him. I don't believe that he intended for that to happen, but I do believe once that started happening... Okay, let me... I'm kind of talking all over the place. So, Palpatine becomes disfigured in his appearance, right? So, when he shot the lightning at Mace Windu, Mace Windu was able to counter it and deflect it and push the light lightning back to him by using a technique called vapid which or vapid i don't know how to say it but it's got two a's after v so vapid and what vapid is it's it's a it's a form of lightsaber technique which channels darkness into a weapon of light so he uses that to counter this lightning and shoot it back at the emperor when <clears throat> Excuse me. So as it's hitting him, it's affecting his appearance, but all it does is it breaks a Sith spell. Palpatine had a a Sith spell on himself to not make himself look the way he does. He the dark side of the force has a tendency to disfigure its users. It's a phenomenon known as dark side corruption. Those who 
practice the dark arts, it just it consumes them and it makes it gives them yellow eyes. It disfigures their bodies. It it just it's the power. It's too much power for a, that a human body or an alien body can handle. So it it disfigures them, and it when the lightning hit him, it, this was masking his true corrupted, disfigure appearance and also his voice. So all it did was reveal his true nature. It wasn't actually changing him from what he was. He was using Sith um, alchemy to give him, make himself look more normal. And this also affected his voice. Uh, I heard somewhere someone was saying, how come his voice sounds like so, like, effect? Like, it sounds like there's a, a voice changer on his voice at that scene. Like, when he's, uh, let's see. He's like, he stands up and he's talking to Anakin and he's just like, um, once more, the Sith will rule the galaxy. And it just sounds very, I'm sorry, guys. It sounds very uh, edited. It sounds like there's a lot of uh, voice changer effects going on. In it. And I think the reason is because he was using the Sith alchemy to make himself sound normal the whole time, that now it's like adjusting. He's changing into his true self, and this is the moment of transition. And so it's affecting his voice, because after... At the end of the scene, he's like, and now we'll have peace. His voice goes back to normal, and it's less disturbing. And I think that's just because in that moment, he was transitioning, and it was causing his whole body and voice and everything to just be disrupted. Um, and he that's just what, that's my opinion, but that's what I think happened anyway. So that is the Emperor reveal. That was my explanation on to why. He looks the way he does. I think he's always looked like that and stuff. But um, I do also want to point out, I think Padme got just as mind-fucked as Anakin Skywalker did in this movie. Because, you know, I said Anakin's been, like, having all this stuff thrown at him from different sides and telling him to spy on everybody and everything like that. And he doesn't really know where he belongs in the story because no one really knows what's right. That's what he's figuring out. No one has a constructual idea of how to how to be good like what is good it's just an opinion so he's very confused i think padme was in the same situation funny side note as i was like writing down my notes here uh, every time i type padme it switches to padre because <laughs> padme is not a real word and uh i just thought it was funny because she's she's actually the madre not the padre and it corrected to padre Maybe my autocorrect is trying to tell me something here, like a theory about uh, Padme was the father the whole time. I <laughs> okay, so Padme was mind-fucked and also regularly fucked because she got prego, but mind-fucked because, if you remember, she's hearing everything firsthand from Anakin Skywalker about what's going down, right? So she's getting Anakin's point of view on all the events surrounding what's going on in the Senate. Because, let me see. So when when Anakin comes to her and he's just like, I've been asked to spy on the Chancellor. And she's like, oh my God, I can't believe that. And then later he comes back and he's just like, the Jedi overthrew the Republic. And she's like, oh my God, what about Obi-Wan? And he's just like, we can only hope he remains faithful to us. And then when she goes to the Senate hearing after <clears throat> the Emperor gets... Um, revealed. She goes there and she hears from him, the Jedi attempted uh, 
to kill me, and now we're going to come together and uh, defeat the Jedi because they're the true enemy. She's hearing all this from one side. And then, at the end of the movie, she starts to hear it from Obi-Wan's side, and that's just like totally messing with her head. She doesn't know what to believe. Therefore, she's like, Anakin, just come with me, and let's run away and forget about everything. And she's also very confused. She's in the middle of this whole thing, too. And she's starting to struggle with, I don't know what's right and what's wrong. And I think that's a good parallel with uh, her husband, Anakin. And it shows both of them going through the struggle and which eventually leads to the uh, separation of their kids. And I just think it's beautiful. And so both of them are going through this like headache of not knowing what to believe. And then they both, Padme gets knocked out. Anakin gets burned. They both get on put onto medical bays or tables, one of which is having children. The other one is also having some kind of body work done to him. And it's just that parallel going on. And then when Padme dies, um, Anakin dies and becomes Vader. It's just a, it's a really good parallel and it plays through the entire movie. And I never realized that before, but both Anakin and Padme have this theme going on throughout this movie that was set up perfectly. And, Oh, just go back and watch it again. When she's like being pushed at her funeral and then it switches back to Vader being raised on his platform in the medical bay. It's just so much symbolism there. And then it shows the separation of their children. It's just so, it's so powerful. The imagery is amazing. I'm going to get more into that once we get to the end here and talk about the final battle. But um, another thing, remember when I said I actually got another favorite line of this movie? Well, it was shortly after this time. And it was when Yoda comes in and he's like, walks into Palp's office and he's just like, knocks down the two guards, and he's just like, hey, I heard you called him shit, so I'm here to, like, tell you to stop. And then he, like, shoots him with lightning, and then he, like, absorbs it in his palm or whatever. <laughs> he gives my favorite line of this movie. Not if anything to say about it. I have. And then he shoots him with the, the lightning, and Palpatine's like, oh, my God, I didn't expect that. And he falls over his desk or whatever. That's my favorite line, just because... <laughs> <laughs> it makes no sense coming from Yoda. I mean, just the way it's said, it's just, it's so funny. <clears throat> so, uh, this is the point, the part of the story where it starts to intertwine with the um, Yoda-Palpatine fight and the Anakin-Obi-Wan fight. And it's beautifully intercut with each other. I, I really love this part of the film. It's an epic, epic finale. And, um, one thing I, I don't want to, I don't wish happened was, well, let me just say, the Yoda and Palpatine fight is really, really cool. I remember as a kid, that was one of my favorites, too. and But I do think Yoda could have beat up the Emperor at that, in that scene. I mean, he, he was equal in power, equal in strength, equal in knowledge of the Force, obviously. And he, I don't, he, he could have beat him. I just think he was too old and he couldn't keep up. That was the only problem. But if he'd have just like sucked it up and just like powered through, he could have made it. And my only critique of the film is I don't see 
how Yoda failed. Remember, he's like, failed have I, into exile I must go. I don't, that's my one critique of this film. I don't understand, and I don't see how Yoda failed. And, I mean, it could, did he fail because he ran away from the fight and he's a coward? Is that what makes him a failure? That's the only way I can see it, but it wasn't explained very well. I just, I know Yoda could have beat him. And then it all would have been over. You know, it's... I mean, he he told Obi-Wan himself, he's like, you're not powerful enough to go against the Emperor. I am. And he just ran away. That's my my one critique of this film, is that Yoda was cowardice. And that's not... That's not Yoda. I mean, it is, but it's... It's not, you know? And that... But it explains how he ends up on Dagobah and why he goes into exile and what makes him such a powerful figure in this last one. And it also explains his line in The Last Jedi, you know, failure. You know, they are what we grow beyond. Like, failure is key or whatever, and it makes you better. Um, I just, I wish it, I wish it had gone down differently, because I really think Yoda could have beat Palpatine. But we all know this movie had to end with the, the bad guy winning, right? So, <clears throat> one last thing I want to talk about is before we move into the final act of this of this movie is the animation again. I just want to comment and say that the quality of this animation in this movie is really really good for 2005. It is it was it's amazing. I'm I'm always impressed when I go back and watch it. I think it's beautiful. It's always alluring and attractive and every corner, every part of the frame has something going on and you can see something new each time you watch it. I believe the animation quality was far superior to that of the cameras at the time. Because remember, like I said, these movies were shot in 1080p. There is no 4K resolution of these movies because the technology didn't exist. But the animation was. When they have the close-up shots, like, for example, on General Grievous when he, and, and Yoda, and they have close-up shots on both of them, it's stunning the work that is put in and you can see all the muscles and movements and every wrinkle and the eyes are so everything looks beautiful and looks perfect but then when these are when these animations and cgi are put in the background it looks a little less impressive and i think that's because of the resolution quality the the 1080p you can't if it's in 1080p and you're looking at something in 4k in the background it's going to look blurry it's gonna look bad and i think that's the problem this movie had the animation had surpassed filmmaking at this time and it it wasn't yet caught up with each other one was moving a little quicker than the other but i just wanted to comment because the animation of this movie really is impressive and if we could use that today i think we'd get one hell of a visual movie and i think that's what george was going to do if he would have gotten to make his versions of seven eight nine so, without further ado, let's talk about the ending of this movie, which is the best ending we've gotten in the prequels, and it's an epic final battle and a grand finale. So let me start off by saying that my favorite shot of this finale is that scene where they're having a dialogue before they fight, and Anakin's in the foreground, and Obi-Wan's in the background, and it's the part where Obi-Wan says, um, your new empire, it's, they're both in different, um, depths of field, but they're in the same focus, and I think that 
style of uh, framework is a really cool composition because it, it, I mean, if you do that on film, you have to like <clears throat> layer one half of the lens in one focus and the other one in a, in a different. And it was the first time that was ever done with digital photography. So they just took two different <clears throat> shots and pulled it on, put it onto one. It's my favorite shot. It's just really beautiful. And it um, just shows both of them. And I think it's a really cool scene and it really, op it opens up that they're about to like do something big very dramatic shot and so right before we get into this you hear Anakin tell Padme like you know I can help I can like save us like only my new powers can save you and this this whole time he, I, I always hear people say like <clears throat> you know his turn to the dark side was so sudden and and Emperor Palpatine like made him Darth Vader like really quickly and it sounds like he just came up with the name out of nowhere and it's you guys got to remember remember at the beginning of this movie Padme told Anakin I'm pregnant and then at the end of the movie she has a baby so this whole movie takes place over the time span of 9 months so there's a lot going on and there's a lot that we don't see because of that so his transition to the dark side really has been taking place I mean not just 9 months mostly the more the latter half of this has been a big part of him turning, but also his whole life he's been transitioned to the dark side and trained to like <clears throat> be manipulated. But the movie itself has taken place over a long period of time, and you can see like his new powers growing every time he kills somebody, and they show him killing all the separatists, and his eyes start to turn yellow. The more people he kills, the more he loses himself, and he gains. Uh, it becomes an open vessel for dark side uh, abilities, and that's what gives him those powers. He just starts to lose himself, and he lose, loses his, <clears throat> his uh, faith to being a, a good person, and he just becomes this empty hole where all this dark side energy can consume him. So I, I don't have any complaints about it being really sudden or anything like that. I, I do see myself the the time set between it all, and... Uh, I think it's brilliantly laid out that there's plenty of time to for him to turn to the dark side. But also, on Emperor's comment, you know, he he didn't just spontaneously say, your new name is Darth Vader. He didn't come up with it then. I know it sounds like it, but remember, he's been manipulating this small boy from, from the beginning, from his conception. He's the one who made Anakin. He's been planning this the whole time. You don't think he already picked out a name for him? I do. I think he, he's picked out the name Vader for the longest time, so I don't think it was as sudden as everybody makes it out to be. But, um, again, that's just my opinion. So, the final battle, the ending of Revenge of the Sith. I'm going to tell you about this one woman's opinion on Revenge of the Sith really quickly. So there's this, there's this writer, and her name is Camilla Paglia, she is an American feminist, uh, an academic, and a social critic, and she writes about contemporary art and um, visual influence, and she teaches at the University of Arts in Philadelphia, and she, she just talks a lot about modern art, and she's also a historian. And she wrote a book <clears throat> uh, a while ago, 
2011 or something like that. Um, I forget the name of it, but it, it was a book about modern art and the impact on society and stuff like that. And she says that Revenge of the Sith, the final act, is the strongest contemporary contemporary visual art in the last 30 years. And she claims it to be the best visual piece ever made in the past 30 years and to, till today. And when I read that, it blew my mind. She's not a Star Wars fan. She's, she, I mean, <clears throat> she, when she talked about it, she said she was casually, she was writing this book and she didn't know how to end it and she was casually flipping through. She needed something to talk about that was a good example of what um, <clears throat> modern visual contemporary art should be. And she was flipping through the channels one day, not even doing research, and she came across Revenge of the Sith on TV and she just stopped and decided to watch it. And then as she's watching it, she's like, oh my God, this is absolutely brilliant. And then she put it in her book. So some of what I'm going to talk about this last scene comes from her book. And then a lot of it's going to be on my own interpretation of it. But I do think it's interesting that an academic in the field of visual art and uh, teaching and academia is saying that Revenge of the Sith is the strongest contemporary example of visual art in the past 30 years. And it's funny because everybody hates the prequels. <laughs> so let's dive into it and let's talk about why she thinks this way and um, my thoughts on it as well. So one of the first things she mentions is the amount of material and uh, the things that are going on in this final battle scene. We got Padme coming in. She's and then Obi-Wan shows up, there's choking going on, there's yelling between the two guys, there's a battle inside of a, a, a space station, and they hit a control panel, and then the space station starts to fall apart, and then they're swinging on wires, and they're fighting over lava rivers, and then they're on a hillside, and then we see how Vader becomes who he is by getting his limbs chopped off, and then there's a... Um, a birth of two kids and then Vader is created and then there's a funeral and they fake the baby's death with the belly and then there's a, the twins are separated and one's brought to Tatooine, one's brought to Alderaan and there's just so much going on and everything that's going on, it's all taking place with little to no dialogue and it's, you have to rely on just your visual cues for it and an, another thing uh, I really love about this ending is at the end before Anakin gets sliced up by Obi-Wan, made into sushi, he's, he says, I should have known the Jedi were planning to take over. And you feel bad for Anakin because you can see that he has no idea what the fuck is going on. He has been completely corrupted. And Obi-Wan feels bad for him. He's just like, then you are lost. And he's like, I wish I could have helped you, but I couldn't. And he slices him up. He's like, I loved you. You're my brother. Like, you were supposed to be the chosen one. It's so powerful. And it's honestly emotional. I remember watching it after reading the section of this book and being like, wow, you know what? This is like, it's so dramatic. It's, it's, it's like a Greek opera. And it's, it's, very, it's very impactful and it's very essential to the transition into the new tone of this original trilogy that came out 40 plus years ago. So... <clears throat> Again, back to the, the fighting and everything. The fighting is like a dance. She, uh, Camila, Camille, sorry, she says that like, it's it's the 
it's a contemporary dance. It's, it's, um, there's a story being told through the dance. It's movements. It's not a fight. It's, there's a lot more going on. You can tell that there's a hatred between these two men. They start off yelling at each other. And then they're like, well, then we'll just, I'll fight you for it or whatever. So they start fighting. And then as they're fighting, you know, all this stuff's going on around them. And they're fighting to the environment that's happening around them. And all the while, they're focused on killing each other. They're not focused on anything else around them. And the beauty of the environment around them and everything that's happening is <clears throat> it's a, it affects them and it tells their story. And you can see their relationship and how they fight each other. They're just going at it. It's the longest battle in Star Wars lightsaber fights. And it's because not, probably neither one of them really want to kill each other, right? Because they love each other. But they're fighting each other because they have to. And they're both too scared to get down to the point and just kill each other. So they keep finding ways around it. One runs up a, a big pole that's about to go into a lava river. Maybe they were thinking, like, if I'm going down... Or if I'm going to take you down, I'm going to go down as well. You know, that kind, of, that kind of mentality and the way it's set up. And it's just a grand opera. It's powerful. And they have these landscape paintings from the romanticism that are similar to that. And then the apocalyptic destruction of individual culture and politics is all blended into this one final battle. And that's what makes it so powerful. Because they're not just fighting uh, two men. They're fighting for two sides, two uh, that are both about the same thing, but they're fighting from different points of view of it. It's not really about them, but at the same time, it is about them. It can, it's so much more, and it's so much less, all in one fight. And again, the visual virtuosity of this whole final battle is brilliant, not just for the story's sake, but also for audience sake. You know, think about the people that put the effort in to make this. Think about the actors having to run through this scene over and over. In the behind the scenes of the making of Return of the Revenge of the Sith, they said that every time they ran through <clears throat> the fight scene, Anakin, or excuse me, Hayden Christensen and Ewan McGregor wanted to run the whole fight because it was, <clears throat> they wanted to really get into it. So they ran the whole thing each time. It's like, the fight itself is like 20 minutes long. It's very impressive. And they wanted to get it right every single time. And So there's that. And then you also have the animators who came in. And they did all the work on behind the scenes, making it look beautiful. But then also, a crew, the the um, second unit crew of this movie f uh, film, they heard that there was a volcano that was about to erupt somewhere else in the world, and they thought it would look nice to be <clears throat> put into this part of the movie. So they went out, and they filmed tons of shots of this volcano erupting. They came back, and they put those shots into this movie. So the lava you see, the explosions, the eruptions of lava coming up from the volcanoes and stuff, that's all real footage put into this animated world, which blows my mind too. And that's where the author also says, like, it's, it's the combination of all these things put together is what makes it a, a contemporary visual masterpiece and the best example we've had of it in the last 30 years. You know, it's a mix of live action, animation, models, inserts from natural footage. That's right, there's models in there too. Uh, most of the <clears throat> buildings and structures you see are actually models that they shot separately. And they're just all overlaid on top of each other into this one medium. So yes, there's tons of CGI and special effects, but a lot of it is are inserts. The thing that 
the giant pole that they're running across um, above the lava river, that's actually a model that they just, they were walking on a green screen and they just put it onto this model and just so it can have that stat look that makes it look normal almost. And it's just so grand and epic. The dance of their duel, it's like theater. It's a dance theater. It's, it's contemporary dance. It's a love-hate between two men, and it tells that story. And it's just emphasized through the, through the environment. I mean, I already talked about the parallels of Anakin and Padme, both on the medical tables being worked on. And it shows how they were both being tricked by the political system. And it's the ultimate death of a mother and a father. That's powerful too, and this is this is everything we wanted to see, and everything we were promised to see, that happened before, a new hope, and Return of the Jedi. You know this this final act of this movie is what everybody in the world, who's a Star Wars fan, has been wanting to see. How did Vader come to be? How did the Empire come to be? Where the fuck is Luke's father? Where's Luke's mother? Why is he with his aunt and uncle? This last you know, 20, 25 minutes of this movie is everything we've ever wanted to see in one skit. And when Padme says there's still good in him, and that's the last line she says after she gives birth to the babies, that line hit me because she was right, and she knew it. And she knew that he would be redeemed one day because it's, it goes back to his redemption at the end of the Return of the Jedi. And, and it passed on through the siblings. And then when Darth Vader, at the end of Return of the Jedi, he's like, tell your sister you were right, that there was so good in him. It's unbelievable how powerful and much of a masterpiece the last piece of this movie is. It relates to everything in the original trilogy, and it sums up everything from the first two films. It really is amazing. Uh, however, my second critique of this movie is the no that Darth Vader screams at the end. Uh, that could have never have been recorded. But uh, <laughs> And then, of, of course, we have Yoda saying, I have training for you. Uh, Qui-Gon Jinn has learned to go into the nether worlds and use the force to come back and talk to people or whatever. And that wraps up what, how we get force ghosts in the past and stuff like that. And the wiping of C-3PO and the decommissioning of battle droids. Like, why are there no battle droids in the original trilogy? It's because they, they said, cut them all out, you know, execute order 66 and wipe out the droids. <clears throat> and then there's a complete tone, recon uh, tone reconnaissance done, and it's in the perfect transition at the end of an era, you know, because we completely wipe out the prequels. Everything is not shiny and new and uh, has its own originality to it anymore. Remember, we're going into the Empire days. Everything is the same. We have clone troopers. We have Star Destroyers now. Everything is under the rule of the Galactic Empire. And then it ends with the children being separated. So remember, at the beginning of this fight, we had two men fighting against each other on 
their hatred towards each other and the two sides of that, the, the two, the dark and the light. And so it starts with two of them fighting and hating each other and it ends with two children being separated. So it starts with the anger of men and it ends with the tenderness of men when the Luke is given to Owen and it shows them taking care of the children and then Organa wants to raise Leia and it shows it just goes from the hatred of men to the tenderness of men so quickly and it's very it's just it's done so well you know and she's right this uh Camille uh ladies you know there's been nothing like this in uh, recent times where we've gotten a story told similar to that you know it's just it's very old fashioned and it it's like the stories you read when you're in middle school, high school of like a hero's journey and like the Odyssey and stuff like that. And I agree with her. You know, I'm not sure about it being the best form of contemporary visual art we've ever gotten in 30, 40 years, but it is a masterpiece in its own. And it sums up everything you ever wanted to know about the history before the events of a new hope. And it's, uh, Man, just talking about it makes me want to go watch it again. And if you guys listening are wanting to go watch it again too, that just, <laughs> we should all do it together. We should do a watch along sometime. Maybe we'll do that if we get the viewership for it. <clears throat> but guys, that's really all I want to say about Revenge of the Sith today. Uh, I know it was a little a little ranty at some points. <laughs> Sorry about that. But um, we are done with the prequels in the Star Wars marathon leading up to the Rise of Skywalker. So starting next week, this mon- uh, next Monday, we are going to watch episode four, and I'm going to do a review for it. So, those of you listening, on Sunday night, why don't you go ahead and watch Star Wars A New Hope, and then Monday morning, I will release my podcast where we will talk about it, and I'm going to break it down. And for those of you, again, just tuning in, every week, up until The Rise of Skywalker, watching one movie, and just getting ready for that release, because it's going to be epic. This is the last installment guys this is a big deal and it's gonna be awesome again thank you for listening i'm your host han on han talks first this is in episode 26 the revenge of the sith review now somehow some way somewhere this week may the force be with you Do it.